Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, friends. Welcome to OnScript. This is Amy Brown-Hughes, a co-host for the podcast with Matt Lynch, Matt Bates, Aaron Heim, Drew Johnson, and Chris Tilling. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with artist, writer, and speaker Makoto Fujimura. He has had numerous museum exhibits and has served as an international advocate for the arts as a presidential appointee to the National Council on the Arts from 2003 to 2009. I highly recommend you head over to makotofujimura.com to see his work. My thanks to Yale University Press for sending me his new book, Art Plus Faith, A Theology of Making. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk with Mako today, and not only because I've admired his art, writing, and speaking for years, as I'm sure many of you listening to this podcast have, but because I think what he speaks about in this book is especially timely. Welcome, Mako. Thanks for being here. I'm I'm grateful. To begin with, would you share with us a bit about your journey as an artist? Is there a moment or two that stands out as being particularly formative for you? I speak about this in the book, I think. uh, My mother uh, kept this painting that I did when I was two and a half or three. We were in Sweden at the time. I was born in Boston. Uh, My father is a scientist, and um, um, he he traveled to other countries to do research, and we were in Sweden for two years and before um, heading to Japan. And um, this this painting, uh, my mother kept, and she framed it and gave it to me for my college graduation um, when she went into uh, a nursing home um, until she passed away. She had it in her room as well. And it says something about, that, not that I was aware of this painting <laughs> at all. Um, it, it's a delightful painting that uh, has the same gestures and colors that I use today. Um, and and it, it says something about my mother who kept saw something in me as a gift and um, it's true of that, um, I think. Um, you know, knowing she had two uncles who were artist types. Uh, one, it was a theater uh, uh, playwright, and uh, the other was uh, a painter. And and so she knew the difficulty of path of being an artist. Um, and and so um, when I finally decided to try to make a go of it. Um, she would talk about her uncles and how difficult it was for them. And and yet she never dissuaded me from pursuing what I have done. And, and uh, this this was her answer. You know, I, I saw your gift very early on and I have um, kept it. And uh, so, um, and, and of course, another thought that I have when, when you asked me that question was, um, you know, when when you are trying to see if art is indeed um, your, you know, vocation and your calling, and um, well, I knew it was my calling. I just didn't know if I could make it work. Um, <laughs> you know, you you hit a certain 
point where you really have to trust that th this is this is the path, and um, there, there's no evidence of anybody telling you that you should do this. Or in fact, it's the other way. <laughs> you know, people are saying you shouldn't do this. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but um, I I do remember early on um, there were a few people in my life. Uh, you know, I, I went to. Bucknell University, liberal arts institution like Gordon, and uh, I, I had a few professors who saw the same kind of thing uh, as a, a kind of a unique gift, um, and certainly encouraged me. They, they, you know, they they weren't saying that I have to try to make it as an artist, but they they saw something in in, in the particular way that I. Um, painted or I captured reality. And so I, I had opportunities where I, I could develop that at undergraduate uh, studies um, along with my writing, which which came a very difficult uh, journey for me being, you know, bilingual, uh, non-lingual at the time, you know, like struggling <laughs> with every language. Um, but um, you know that was that was good too because I, I've always connected writing as part of my creative work out of my studio as well. I'm just struck in what you shared about the importance of um, you know using kind of Christian speak, right? The others seeing the Holy Spirit and gifts in us, and how it's really a communal work, even if it's an individual journey, um, especially when it's a more um, uh, difficult way of life might not be the right term, but, <laughs> uh, brave, brave pathway. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a kind of impossibility to it, you know, and, and that, that, that goes to communication in general. Um, it's, 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 it's not, it's not easy to, bridge the gap um, between, uh, you know, two people, let alone, uh, you know, your community and society. So, so I don't take that for granted. And I, I, I think there's, there's quite a bit of, um, you know, this, this unction to do something that you know is impossible. Um, you you you're not um, doing it lightly, um, and and you know that there is, uh, you know, if this is going to work at all, it's going to take <laughs> quite a bit of miracle. Um, so um, yeah, yeah I, I've experienced that over and over in my life as well. So before we dive into your book, I'm going to ask for just a brief tour of sorts. Um, since this is an audio podcast, I want to do as much as I can to kind of situate our listeners. I have appreciated your various descriptions of the materials you work with in your book, and I found that to be extremely helpful. Um, the tools that you employ, the rarity of these methods. Uh, would you describe your studio and help ground us in some of the specificities of your art? So... Um... Immediately, you notice uh, if you're looking at me on Zoom, uh, there are two monumental paintings behind me called "Walking on Water," uh, which uh, which was part of a series that was used uh, for the cover of Art Plus Faith uh, Theology of Making book, and so that you see these um, what people have called abstract um, paintings. Um, I don't consider them abstract. <laughs> I, 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 I tend to think of them as, 
you know, reality being represented uh, in a new way. Um, I talk about new creation uh, theology, but uh, I, I literally think that my, my art had taps into the new creation in some way. Um, so uh, what you see is uh, movement, gestures um, that have been developed over time, but the colors, but the colors you see are uh, minerals, uh, pulverized minerals like malachite and azurite. Uh, they, uh, the minerals are pulverized by hand, and I mix them here in the studio with uh, hide glue, Japanese hide glue called Nikawa. And this this is a ancient technique of painting, which harkens back to really um, a prehistoric time, um, but cultivated in particular in J Japanese culture starting around 8th century and then <clears throat> and then 15th century began a lineage program which I was privileged to be a part of. Um, I went back to Japan as a foreign student, a national scholar student and entered a program that was the, that was part of this lineage program that is now a doctorate level curriculum um, on Nihonga, Japanese style painting. Um, but this literally, this lineage of mentors to mentees go, goes back to 15th century. And, and so I, I was particularly interested in 16th and 17th century Japanese art. I, I felt that was very formative for me. Um, and something about that period really captivated me, even, even in undergraduate. Uh, studies when I was painting, something will come out, and uh, you know, and and again, my professors noticed this that there's some some very unique way that I was seeing the world, and it it matched up with the uh, 16th century and 17th century Japanese art. Um, so I continue to use these materials, the methods that I I've learned and mastered, um, but then. The surface of these monumental paintings uh, that you, you will see in, in my paintings are done with space age <laughs> materials, and uh, so it's it's a it's a combination of 21st century with 16th century uh, in terms of materiality and aesthetics. Well, I wish you all could see uh, what the, the beautiful work that's behind him right now. But I, actually, I think it's the first on your website. I think it's right there, um, this piece. So you'll be able to see it, at least the digital version. Um, so your new book builds on your earlier work on culture care. Why did you write this book? Uh, and how does it build on your earlier work on culture care? So the new book, um, Our Plus Faith, is really my life work. Uh, I, I have been writing this book for over 30 years, I think. And <clears throat> culture care was a result of me being on the National Council and being an arts advocate and, and lecturing all over U.S. And, 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 and sometimes outside of U.S. And um, so there are essays that I wrote mostly on airports and airplanes because as I was preparing to do my lecture, I would write things down. And then I have just as much notes on theology behind it, even though I was speaking to a broader audience um, outside of the church. So I don't mention these 
you know, Galatians 5 principles to, to <laughs> museum audience. But, you know, I talk about culture care. I talk about abundance, assumptions of scarcity versus assumptions of abundance. I, I, I talk about, um, you know, this, this possibility of love that exists that holds the universe together uh, and, and, and so forth. So, um, you know, I, I began to write this exegetical work of scripture, um, which, by the way, uh, the book uh, Art Plus Faith is one third of what I have written. Um, <laughs> my editor really helped me because she she uh, worked very hard to make it uh, more concise and as a kind of introduction to theology of making or theology of new creation. And um, so you know, I, I have uh, ample notes uh, every time I lecture on, on theological principles and what undergirds cultural care um, as as a as an alternative path to cultural wars, um, and and hopefully that that is helpful for people to understand that there you know there are other ways of shaping culture other than fighting culture wars. Um, culture care is not a war against culture wars. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's an antidote, I would say, um, to the, the polemics and polarized discourse um, that really doesn't go anywhere at the end of the day. It makes things worse. So um, <clears throat> I, I talk about generativity and cult culture care that, that comes directly out of my understanding of, of Galatians 5, being filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean in culture as much as uh, it, it may mean to us as uh, you know, followers of Christ and um, growing in spiritual formation and, and so forth, I think requires a generative lifestyle. That's a good segue to... Um Throughout your book, you draw on a series of distinctions with the values that undergird making, such as you, you just mentioned the generative piece, which I particularly appreciated. Really enjoyed that, um, uh, and then generos and generativity, generosity versus like usefulness, efficiency, pragmatism, and extinction. I found that section on like extinction and death particularly poignant. Would you expand on some of these distinctions to help flesh out what you mean by a theology of making? Yeah, so we are faced with severe scarcity model. Um, and Darwinian model depends on this, right? That you have competition and, uh, you know, the survival of the fittest model. And, and, and we assume this is a, um, you know, modern view, <laughs> but that's not true, right? Uh, you, you look back to uh, Jesus speaking on, on the Sermon on the Mount, and he's directly addressing uh, people who are living in severe scarcity. Um, and he is turning it upside down and invoking uh, this, you know, kingdom principle that opens up uh, the assumption of abundance rather than assumption of scarcity. And so, you know, when, when an artist is involved in making, or anybody who is involved in making, you're tapping into the abundance side, <laughs> rather than scarcity side. Uh, it may be driven by scarcity or trauma of some kind uh, in response to that. But, but we are, you know, we hear music um, beyond what 
we think is out there or you know anything that is new assumes that you're creating uh, even though you don't see uh, that sign of that uh, whatever you're making um, and you know it's it's part of good stewardship to um, bring the best materials or uh, what, whatever you're making. If you're cooking, you, you, you want to go to the farmer's market and get the best tomato. Um, and that principle should be applied in terms of culture. And, and that's, that's like where, you know, this generative culture, I think, comes out of is, is what we normally do as human beings in community, even if we are facing scarcity, is to try to do our best to bring out the materials around us, try to get the best materials possible. Um, and create something that is not just for survival, <laughs> but but for goodness and beauty that 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 flows into that. And so, what when I talk about in culture care this generative way of seeing or living, you you're saying that. Yes, scarcity model is real. You know, this Darwinian reality is real, and I, I, you know, it's it's not to fantasize. You know, something that um, is not true, but but it's also what I call utilitarian pragmatism. That that is a huge philosophical assumption that go into saying that well, that's the only way that we can you know, yeah. survive is, is by doing this and demonizing the other people or, you know, holding, holding, uh, uh, you know, whatever it is that we have. Um, and that is the opposite of what Jesus spoke of uh, to, uh, the, to, by the way, an area, you know, in the world where it's literally called, called Armageddon Valley because Nazareth was th- that place, you know, trade route north, south, and east, west that everybody contested over. So there was there was no guarantee <laughs> for, for, you know, that tomorrow will be a better day. Um, uh, it was it was it was severe scarcity and severe limitations and uncertainties, uh, much more so than what we experience today, um, certainly for most of us. And so how could Jesus speak to these people? facing that and say, you know, blessed uh, are those who are persecuted, those who are poor, and those who are, who are weeping. And, uh, and you know, c- c- by the way, consider the lilies of the field, you know, and, and look at the birds of the air. Like, what is he saying? <laughs> you know, and and I, it, it really occurs to me that artists do that well. Uh, they do look at the birds uh, of the air and, and consider the lilies and and see the abundance of the world, and when you know Jesus is invoking the abundance of creation, and 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 uh, in, introducing uh, himself as the entry point into the new creation, the new kingdom that is, that is arriving. I'm just thinking, especially, uh, I think it's really common for Christians to feel well, and humans in general, but thinking within the Christian paradigm of that if I don't produce, then I'm not, you know, I'm not bringing anything into the world. And then we have expectations about 
what it means to produce, what it means to be useful. And then am I producing enough? <laughs> Which leads to efficiency. I particularly appreciated in this section um, your reference to the concept um, of aseity. Uh, which it's very familiar to theologians, um, but super shocking whenever I tell my students and I, I tell them all, look me in the eye, God doesn't need you. <laughs> they just look at me like, what? I'm like, he doesn't need your prayers. He doesn't need anything about you. And they just look at me simultaneously, really deeply concerned and also and then but then to say God wants you like that, that it's a paradigm shift for them to feel that everything in there and in our lives, like from you have to pray, you have, which is all, all that is, it's important, right? It's, it's, it's a part of the way that we engage God, but the scarcity mentality that you're talking about is so destructive, <laughs> even to how we think, who, who we think God is and how we imagine our connection to God. Yeah, uh, that's that's really beautiful that you do that because I, that's uh, I think that's the number one thing that we need to remind ourselves all the time is God does not need us. God does not need you know the creation, the universe. <laughs> God is all sufficient. Um, so why did God create? You know, is the next question, and the answer is God is love, yeah. and love generates. Love creates something that is maybe unnecessary you know we 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 think of it in in the industrial mode of you know this reality of efficiency and purposefulness but um pragmatism is in in itself um not a concept that that is driven by scarcity uh, if you read William James, he, he's he's really talking about the fundamental reality that, uh, you know, because God is God of order and God created out of love, <laughs> you know, there there is a pragmatic reality which is which is um, which goes beyond the industrial realm. Right. So that's why he's writing this, um, you know, and and what's what's really interesting is we have turned that into a, a kind of a mantle for, uh, uh, you know, our own um, existence being, you know, so needed by for God's project to I talk about. Uh, plumbing theology, you know, it's, it's like you, you, yes. you, you get, you get tools and, uh, you know, you go to church and you get tools and every week you're giving new tools and you learn this new tool, you go back and you fix your pipe and you go back every, every week. And very rarely you hear sermons about why you're doing this, you know, <laughs> and, and Sunday schools that says, you know, let, let me tell you about the new wine, of new creation flowing through the pipes, you know, let me, and, and uh, you know, of course, that involves Jesus's own sacrifice, his, his blood, a sanctified, you know, reality flowing into us, the, the water of the Holy Spirit, you know, but, but, but those, those seem to be part of the fixed mentality for, for us. Um, we, we get into this, we get caught up in uh, really, Oh, I have to do this. I have to pray. I have to evangelize. I have to do all of these to please God, and that may be true. But but it's really the reverse is is is, is more important that God is pleased with us, period. 
right? In, in, in Christ, we're a new creation, and therefore, we are liberated from a bondage to decay now. We are children of God, and we are able to freely exist and dance and rejoice and enjoy God, <laughs> enjoy God forever. Mm-hmm. And, and, but how did this whole thing get turned around into, you know, this, this um, that we create our need uh, before God? We have to prove God's existence and defend God's existence <laughs> as if, we, you know, God needs that. No, <laughs> you know, <laughs> God it's doesn't so need true. us to <laughs> debate God's existence. You know, like that, that is just like, um, you know, falling into this false dichotomy, the, the modernist uh, reality of, you know, do, do you have to actually prove something to, for it to exist? No, God, God doesn't need any, any of this, you know. So, so I, I feel like, okay, so art fundamentally kind of taps into whether, you know, the artist is conscious or not, that, that's, that, that, that um, may be case by case, but, the, you know, this, this realm of transcendence, which, which doesn't make sense. Um, and it moves beyond uh, something that is uh, industrial, certainly, and you know, utility-driven. Um, and so, it's kind of wasteful in that sense, you know, um, because it, 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 you know, people can say, "Well, this is useless," uh, you know. My, and I say, "Yeah, it's <laughs> my artist is completely." But it's like saying love is useless. It's like, right? It's like it's like saying love is useless. Well, we fall in love. We understand this, right? We we yeah. don't do normative things. We don't do plumbing. We we make beauty, <laughs> and yeah. and we want to you know share that with our loved ones. And and those are the things that will remain. Uh, ironically, it's not the things that are listed on on a schedule book today, but it's it's the moment that we actually waste with our loved ones that will remain. Um, I, I believe into eternity, beyond eternity. But uh, you know, the, and, but but we forget that all the time. Well, and when we have an idea that, because if we don't assent to a seity, this idea that God doesn't need us, uh, but that God wants us, and that God creates, because that is, you're right. The exact next question, my students, well, then why did He make us? <laughs> it's like it's 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 automatic. And but well, out of love. But see, our category, right, of love. Um, is grounded in uh, in some form of need or lack, but God has no lack and has no need, and uh, and if we it's so God is, <laughs> it's almost like while we are swimming in that we are being remade, like that new creation, that kind of love is completely generative. It's not competitive or hostile or conditional and we say oh god's unconditional love and then we sing it and then we (laughs) (laughs) there we go right back doing our plumbing thank you for yeah thank you for bringing up that the plumbing the i found that to be particularly interesting the distinction between and and really helpful because how how does do any of us love calling about our plumbing no (laughs) one of the great comments i got uh, after i released the book was from a plumber and he said i'm a i'm a third generation plumber and when you talked about plumbing and kintsugi, you know, some some plumber maybe kintsugi plumber. That that's me. He said, you know, and I was so happy to hear that because I, I'm not, you know, I mean, thank God for good plumbers, you know. <laughs> yes, because we do. I mean, you talk about making and fixing. We do need fixing. 
but you 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 do this beautiful uh, yeah just there's just one um quote that you said god does not mend or does not mend repair and restore god renews generates transcending our expectations even of even what we desire beyond what we dare ask or imagine which of course includes fixing <laughs> that's right and we think we're just simply you know fixing or repairing uh, as if to get back to Eden you know, in some way, you know, to restore, right? So we call about we talk about redemption, but the goal of redemption in, in our minds is limited to restoration of our, our imagination of what the perfect, you know, the world that ought, that ought to be, you know, is in, in our minds. But that's not what God is talking about in new creation. And that, that cannot be because of the resurrection. And, and the resurrection is not something <laughs> that is normatively, you know, uh, understandable or even, you know, even descriptive um, uh, analytically and rationally. You, you cannot get there by linear propositional, you know, path. So, uh, so what's happening here is fundamentally, you know, uh, something that I, call, I, I talk about new newness, you know, of, of kainos newness, which is the, you know, the word used for uh, in Christ with a new creation. The word kainos is is not a new iPhone, you know, it's, it's not, uh, that would be neos, you know, um, something that comes and goes, um, is replaced, in, you know, next time something, some other new phone comes out, you know. But um, Kainos is new newness. It, it's fundamentally something that we don't fully comprehend to be new. <laughs> so that flips the scale to say, okay, so the gospel is, is all about liberating us from our old wineskin, into new wineskin, but we keep we have a tendency to patch up the old wineskin <laughs> and try to pour the new wine, wine in there. And um, artists are the ones that are conscious or unconscious again. Uh, he or she may not be Christians doing yeah. this, but 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 they tend to tap into the new wineskin. I loved that phrase, new newness. Uh, I, I, you know, there are a lot of different ways that we talk about that in theology, but I thought that had a particular, um, kind of, it tapped into a little of the poetry that I think is really true about the coherence of, of creation and new creation. So let's stay on that kind of new newness track for a moment, uh, that new creation and not just a fix it theme. Um, you described the ancient Japanese art of Kintsugi. I mean, you mentioned it just a moment ago. Um, and you reflect theologically on on that new newness kind of in that uh, frame. So would you describe this art form and give us a taste of some of the connections that you make in your book? So I studied, um, you know, 16th century Japanese art and aesthetics and history. And and out of the tea tradition of San Norikyu uh, came out um, in 1600s. Um, uh, came this uh, idea that commonly uh, we we may know wabi sabi you know um, ideas about um, something that is rusting or worn uh, smooth because of use uh, because of lo loving use you know is is more valuable than a brand new wallet you know uh, kind of thing because it it, it captures actually the person that's using it and that 
from that aesthetic, um, the you know when when an important tea tea well breaks because of many earthquakes in Japan, um, they don't throw it away or they don't super glue it back together. <laughs> um, you know, try to make it as if it never happened. Um, Japan lacquer masters will take the fragments and uh, mend it uh, with Japan lacquer, which is poison sumac-based uh, um, uh, uh, lacquer called urushi, uh, which is in itself a, a very difficult art form to master. And, and then pours gold or um, paints or sprinkles gold on top of Japan lacquer. Um, and kin is gold and tsugi means to mend. But kintsugi is also, tsugi also means to uh, pass on to the next generation. And the type of bowls that I have here in the studio, there uh, many of them are Korean origin um, that went into Japan because Rikyu valued Korean culture as opposed to the uh, dictatorial forces he was working with that wanted to invade Korea, and they did, and um, enslave many Koreans. Um, and, and so Rikyu intentionally uh, worked with a Korean potter <laughs> to create these ceramics and and that you know when when that kind of important teaware breaks the family of tea masters will not mend it right away they will hold on to the fragments for several generations because tsugi means to pass on these fractured pieces and then at some point they will be mended by a japan aka master and create uh, kintsugi so so you know many times you're holding a, a, a ceramic bowl um that that is um that broke you know that was created in 15th century broke in 16th century and mended in 19th century and and that kind of long view um, I talk about this in cultural care, but you know, generational view of mending culture um, and really blessing both the past and the future is is something that Kintsugi represents, and it's, it's a perfect metaphor for new creation uh, theology. You know, because Jesus, uh, after the resurrection, Jesus' wounds are still with him, um, and Thomas wanted to touch. Um, but he doesn't, right? He uh, worships my Lord, my God, and um, and because Jesus' wounds are still with him, and, and it's through his wounds that we are healed. It, it's it's some 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 mist, by some mystery, uh, those wounds are part of the new creation. And if that's true for Jesus, that's true for us as well. I conjecture, and uh, so. There's something, you know, mind blowing about this. Um, that you know, things that we tend to be ashamed of, and things that traumas that we try to run away from. Um, the, you know, issues that are confounding us in the church or in the world or in community or in a family. Those may be the entry point into the new creation, um, if if we allow them to be. And and that that is, uh, you know, to, to me as an artist, uh, uh, that makes sense because that's 
why I use polarized minerals. <laughs> that's that's why I, I, you know, as an artist, I am trained to see that the imperfections uh, and limitations are, are your friends. You know, they, they, they speak into the reality of my, my own imagination and creativity and make that to come alive uh, as opposed to, you know, making it perfect or, or, or trying to write a uh, perfect <laughs> uh, narrative or story, uh, you know, propositionally or in a linear fashion. Um, there's also always a mystery involved. So when when I when I heard about Kintsugi, I was like, that that is such a compelling image and message. Um, and the more I learn about it, the more more I'm 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 really impressed that God's new cre- new creation theology has embedded itself in Japanese culture. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's coming out now. Yes. And, uh, you know, it, as you were describing it, the example you used of earthquakes, it, it struck it stuck something with me because there's a sense that my assumption was, oh, let's say you, a broken teapot, um, that that is because you dropped it on the floor or something, uh, <laughs> which, you know, might also be the case. But but it was interesting that in with like the earthquake example of something that's outside of your control. Like you might have put it in the shelf that you always do to keep it safe and um, you have no control over that earthquake, but it comes anyway. And so with this, with this art form, it's like, it's a way of holding that memory, but that memory no longer holds power over that piece anymore. Right. And becomes a generative opportunity to not only move forward, but create something that in some ways depends on that trauma, right? And and so, uh, you know, I founded, I co-founded Kintsugi Academy with a Kintsugi master who began his journey to create something that anybody can do. You know, Kintsugi, as I noted, uses Urushi, which is poison sumac based. So it takes like, you know, five years of you know training to even use it. Um, but after 311, 2011, so we're, we're about to uh, commemorate the 10th anniversary of what happened in northern Japan, Tohoku Great mm-hmm. Earthquakes of Japan that washed away literally fishing villages, that, that the entire families were washed away. And these children were orphaned in grade schools because they were up the hill. And, um, you know, I, I visited the, that school in Ishinomaki uh, about, it was in April, uh, so about a month later, and there were still fishing boats turned upside down on top of the top of the schools. And you know, the, the, these these uh, uh, you know mo- moments of deep, deep trauma, and yet Nakamura-san, the Kintsugi master, literally began um, the, this journey of becoming an itinerant Kintsugi master because he wanted to go up and help in some way, but he knew that the traditional Urushi is not going to work, so he worked with a fishing rod <laughs> company to create a new Urushi based on cashew nuts, which takes less time to dry, and it, you know, it's less allergic um, and safe, so food safe as well. So he could go up and tell the children and victims to bring uh, what remained in their homes. 
And he began this really ministry. He's not a Christian, but he, to me, it's a ministry of new creation. He, he, you know, began to not just mend these broken pieces himself, but, you know, he created this kit to give it to them so that they can continue to do this even after, you know, um, even after he has to go back to Tokyo, you know, um, and I, when I heard about that, I was, I was really deeply moved, uh, obviously, but, but also I felt like, oh, well, that's what we need, <laughs> you know, in America, you know, this polarized, fragmented culture, you know, we, we need like a, uh, you know, Kintsugi master to come along and, you know, he literally packs these little kids in, in, in medicine bags. <laughs> and so when I invited him to U.S., uh, he landed in Nashville first and, uh, he landed and he didn't have any luggage. He just had a medicine bag <laughs> and another bag of clothes. And I was like, oh, where's your luggage? He said, I don't need any luggage. <laughs> I said, all I need is this, you know. And and so, but but then we have to bring our broken ceramics or something, right? And and that's, that's the difficulty in America is people throw these things away. So, we, we, you know, they, they don't think like the Japanese to keep something that's broken. You know, because it's still mm-hmm. valuable. Uh, we have a consumer culture that that says, "No, you buy something, <laughs> you know, replace it." But um, you know, but but we we've been um, working uh, with the COVID shutdown. We we couldn't do a workshop, so I've been training the uh, leaders um, to be able to, you know, once we are able to gather, create create these Kintsugi workshops using the same kit that. Nakamasan developed in Japan, you know, after 311. That's amazing. I, yeah, as you were talking, I was thinking about, um, you made the distinction between Japanese and American culture. And there's, it kind of goes back to that, the, the distinctions that you make about pragmatism and usefulness and distinction, because it's a really easy step from if you, if consumer culture consumes you, (laughs) um, then, then, you as a person or we think of ourselves as throwaway if you're not making we will consume (laughs) and and that's that's you know we are created to be creative right and consumer marketing is driven to try to replace our impulse to to create something new um, in, into being, you know, chasing, chasing ourselves into something that, you know, we think we need, but we really don't, right? So, so, so that it's a trigger, uh, and the more we are consumed by being, you know, um, consumer mentality, the, the less we are able to create something new into the world. And you speak so beautifully about encountering God in the making, right? And and I think that, especially with a culture that isn't, that doesn't prize sort of taking the time to do something, <laughs> like wasting time, um, in the sense, because we think of a waste of time as something we shouldn't have done in the first place. Um, so what would you say, uh, just briefly, to the, when, we're, when we're feeling kind of bound in, in, in the, this place of making, um, when we feel like we're just kind of part of a grind, um, um, so I try to help people understand that, you know, we do all these resume building in our lives and, um, that is not a bad thing in itself, but, but really 
the, you know, on, on our deathbeds, right? We're remembering back to our lives. What do we remember? <laughs> you know, it's not the it's not the multiple cars that we own or multiple houses or whatever uh, we've gained. You know, it's not the resumes. It's 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 not it's it, you know it's almost a city to talk about. You know these things, um, but you want to. You know, you remember the conversations that you had with your daughter, you know, just without any planning, she says something that is incredibly heating to you. And, and you, you, you will remember that. And you remember the time that you played with your children, you know, <laughs> rather than the time that you know, you are angry with them or, you know what I mean? So it's, so love is at the heart, at the base of uh, memory making, of remembering. And, and so if we, if we understand that, right, that at the end of the day, these things may be important, you know, uh, and there's certainly something that we may work very hard to attain. But at the end of the day, the most important things are the intangibles, you know, the things that we cannot purchase, <laughs> right? And and that's what love is. And it, it 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 doesn't matter how, you know, how much the market tries to entice you to believe in an object to replace that. But but at the end of the day, that will be an empty gesture. You know, we 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 need. To remember something that is tangible, um, that that the almost physical reality of a conversation with a loved one. Um, I, you know, I was involved for many years in uh, church planting and ministering to artists in New York City, and um, I I had this sense that you know as much as we were striving to do all these things they they were good things you know they were doing the busy in ministry and and of course being me being an artist I'm always drawn back to the studio uh, so so at one point I I decided okay so I'm going to schedule 1 hour every Saturday to to I I'm going to mark it down as you know I'm going to waste time <laughs> <laughs> with somebody, <laughs> it can be my children. It, you know, it can it can be uh, an artist that I I'm you know trying to love or and and I, I tell you um, of all the things I've done in New York City, you know, over 15 years that I I was there, the conversations I remember the most are those that in in that hour of you know wasted time. <laughs> it, I remember throwing baseball with my son. You know, I remember uh, taking my daughter just gratuitously, you know, into Soho without any purpose. You know, I remember having a conversation with artists and just having a coffee um, with her. And, and she said, so why are we meeting? I said, I'm just going to waste time with you. Is that OK? <laughs> and, and she would always talk about that. Like many years later, she said, remember when we wasted time? <laughs> And, and I wonder, you know, that's just one hour a week, right? Uh, you know, I wonder what would happen if I, you know, if I did this whole day of this, you know, a whole week. <laughs> maybe, maybe something more beautiful will come out. You know, I don't know. Well, that and that helps. I think 
sometimes when we think about, um, you know, art and making it feels like something that needs, we need to, we can't do any of these other things. <laughs> we can't work on our resume. We have to stop and then spend all of our days sitting in front of an easel. But, but it, you know, what it reminds me of is, is, and you reference this in your book, the Eucharist, where entering into communion and mystery and the actual action of participating in the Eucharist takes a few minutes. But we're stepping into a place where heaven and earth meet, where at this table, God is remaking us. We're heralding the resurrection. We're remembering because there's so much happening in this like little space. And we're having something basic as in, you know, wine and bread, things that are physical, things that are made. But it, it, and just like the mentioning about throwing a baseball with your son and, and spending these time with things it makes us into people that have compassion and it's a pretty, and not just for others, but for ourselves as well to realize that we are not just fundamentally. Right. We're not machines or we're not animals, you know, driven to survive. We're human beings. Um, You know, as a friend of mine says, human beings, not human doings, you know? And, and, and so how do you be? Well, I think, Part of, uh, you know, in, in the mode of industrial efficiency, we, we do need to just step back and waste time. So I want to shift gears and do our speed round. Then I'll have uh, one final question for you after that. Uh, it's a little bit uh, more involved, but are you a morning or a night person? I used to be a night person. And then after I had my kids, I got into this rhythm of Dropping my kids off at, you know, we were in New York City, so at, at, at the public school nearby and then walking to the studio, you know, and, and that became my rhythm. So morning now is like the most productive time. <laughs> I feel like that's the case. I have a toddler. <laughs> it's become <laughs> definitely morning. <laughs> uh, what's your comfort movie? Oh, wow. Um I I have comfort movie. Okay. Um I have a list of like, you know, always like top tens uh that I go back to comfort movie. That's a good question. Nobody's ever asked me that. Well, I've been thinking, you know, in a pandemic, we always like try to find these things like where where something connects with us. I mean, this this is probably the strangest answer you've gotten for this, but <laughs> you know, there's a movie called Stranger Than Fiction. Oh, I love that film. And um that I I think that's a that's a really intriguing <laughs> <laughs> about making, right? What yes. what happens when you make? <laughs> oh, my friends, if you've not seen that film, take it from both Mago and me. You must see that film. <laughs> it's it's great writing, uh, by the way, and great cast. You know, Will Ferrell plays this guy who's a character <laughs> comes alive. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. What is your favorite holiday tradition? Um, Christmas is. For some reason, I I did not grow up in a religious home, but um, my parents always made sure we celebrated Christmas, knowing that we would be coming to America, right? Um, And I actually remember Christmas decorations in Sweden uh, as a young person, you know, just a visual memory, but... um, and so, and this this is something that 
you know, it's always recalibrated, right, by season of life. And, and yet, um, um, so ma many years I, 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 I did not put up a tree. And, you know, the, this year my my bride and I decided that we're going to do the whole thing, you know, and just just go for it. And, and it was it was really very heating. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. What um, has been, if you have to pick one, and it might be kind of hard, uh, what's the, been the most important book, uh, theo theological book for you? Tom Wright's book, right? N.T. Wright's, uh, you know, the, his resurrection book. But, you know, Surprised by Hope is probably the best book to recommend. A resurrection book is rather long. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, yeah, no, I, I think he really helped me to understand this, what I call theology of making or theology of new creation in a very tangible way, you know, not being a theologian. Um, it, it came out of my conversations uh, with him, uh, Alan Davis, Miroslav Wolf, uh, all these people who helped me to think through as an artist would, you know, encounter uh, creativity and imagination um, you know, it's that important to God, you know, and yeah. and and so forth. And it turns out it was it's far more important than I, I even initially thought, you know. So, yeah. tea or coffee? Both. <laughs> I, I I like I like you know if I'm gonna have coffee, I I like to grind up the beans myself and and you know the French press. <laughs> and uh, but usually if I you know if I uh, you know tea tea is uh, especially like. Uh, Taiwanese uh, udon tea. <laughs> what is your favorite magical or mis mythological animal? Oh, the unicorn, definitely. Uh, the unicorn tapestry comes out in my book, and uh, yes, yes. <laughs> I love that you have an immediate response to that. Most <laughs> the, most of my theologian people are like, ah, oh, I don't think about that. <laughs> I always said the pink elephant, but uh, I didn't. <laughs> Uh, if you got a day to hang out with any artist, living or dead, who would it be? And oh my goodness! Oh, that that would be a torture thinking about it. I just like oh, I I would love to have a conversation with William Blake because it was through his poem that I I found Christ. Mm. And uh, people are like, what? <laughs> How could that be? You know, this romantic, uh, crazy poet, you know. But his his Jerusalem uh, pierced my soul. I mean, really, I really understood the gospel. And I didn't even know that I had become a Christian because, I, you know, it was, it was just reading, meeting Christ through William Blake's poem. Um, and then really sensing that, if this man is who he said he was, then I need to follow him. Um, and um, so I, I would love to have a conversation with him about that. All right. One more question. Best band or musical artist ever? The first one that pops in your mind. Oh, well, uh, Bob Dylan, probably. Uh, <laughs> 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 it's good answer. <laughs> All right, it's one more question, but it's a it's a bit of a doozy. So speaking of Tom Wright, I was uh, struck by his lovely forward to your book. Um, he notes how he writes during Lent, and as we are currently recording in Lent, 
Uh, I was struck by your poignant section on the tears of Jesus and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Uh, So may we talk a bit about sorrow? (laughs) Uh, I think that we've talked about, you know, new newness. And so we'll see that all as a part of this context, but about this overwhelming despair that accompanies uh, when everything needs to be fixed and newness feels like it's so far away. How have Jesus, Mary, Martha, Lazarus been companions for you in that space? Yeah, Dr. Love Seacrest, um, when I was sharing with her a photo about this book, I was just in the manuscript stage. She asked me, so what is, what is, what is this book about? And I said, well, John 11, 35, Jesus wept. And she said, that's good. That's a good panel. <laughs> and and I, 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 I think that's, that's, you know, I have been meditating on John 11, John 12 for the past 15 years during that, and I can't get out of it. Um, every time there's something new that I, I never thought about before, and this, this Lenten season in particular has been um, like that as well. And, you know, I, I wrote this book really focused on, John 11:35, Jesus wept. Um, if you look at every chapter through that lens, it, it makes more sense, I think. But you know, I say to you, God, the, the, the gratuity of Jesus standing on the hill of Bethany and wasting time with Mary—like he he went there to resurrect Lazarus, and he doesn't. <laughs> you know, when he sees Mary, no words exchanged, just tears. So why did he waste time weeping with Mary when all he had to do was bring her to the grave and say, Lazarus, come out, you know? Why did he waste time? And and to me, that is one of the most profound pinholes that we can um, gain access to the heart of Jesus and and the reality of God's love um, in creation and, and that leads into new creation. And um, so, I, um, Stephen Garber, a friend of mine, you know, told me once that he would not be a Christian if it, if it wasn't for John 11, 35. Um, it doesn't make sense um, in a pragmatic sense. It doesn't make sense um, even in the way that we describe the gospel to, you know, let's say we're trying to ex- explain the gospel to a non-Christian. Um you know, it's not in four spiritual laws. It's not in Billy Graham, you know, crusade messages. It's, it's uh, you know, so so why is it important? Um, and I, I, I think that's the, the greatest two words um, that that is in the Bible and and the most important to me. Mm. I a couple of things came up as I was reading that section because it was it, it was it was really affecting to me and I I, I thought of rights forward because he mentions um, that we don't um, obliterate darkness um, but art defines the boundaries of it uh, and I thought about how um, one of the people that I work with the most in early Christianity is Gregory of Nyssa and he has this beautiful in his life of Moses, he tells the story of Moses twice through. First time just tells you, you know, the story of Moses. And the second time, we are supposed to, like, enter, like, basically enter into Moses's story and be mentored by him 
in through his own story as your own. It's a very it's it's I've never read anything else like it. But there's this particular moment where he talks about I mean so often the ways that we you know, artistic de- descriptions, poet- poetic descriptions, prose, so much of it is encountering God is going toward a light. But for Nyssa, it's actually into darkness, uh, where the darkness, he talks about the darkness unmaking us um, so that we can be, re- and, and, and then he holds to this, uh, the, the remaking of, of us in new creation. Uh, following upon that. And, and that has that struck me as I was reading this section about how like Christ is our companion and our unmaking. <laughs> uh, and in and not and in the fixing and in the mending and and sometimes it involves uprooting and 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 then Christ is our companion in the making and the newness um, as well. And I and and that that pinhole that you mentioned uh, encapsulates all of that for me. Yeah, and I you know when I during the time that I was finishing the manuscript, you know, the past four years, five years has been the darkest time of my life, and so that's reflected in this book as well. And uh, you know, I I I, I s- so many times I. I thought about, and I, and I happened to go to Jerusalem three times <laughs> during that time for some reason. I'd never been before, and I was invited to partake in a journey um, right as as I was. I, I, I don't even remember much of the trip because I was so traumatized. And, and then, you know, after that, I went back, uh, I had a show at Tikote Museum in Haifa, and, and so I was able to go back twice more. And every time I went back to Jerusalem, and some of, some of that is reflected in the book, I kept on thinking about Christ's tears, you know, and I have said in the past, when I did the uh, Four Holy Gospels project, the Illuminations project in 2011, and I, I literally paint with Christ's tears, you know, that, that I, I, because I believe that Christ's tears didn't disappear and evaporate only, you know, that, that it got multiplied <laughs> and, and it's in every water, uh, rain and fog and, you know, snow. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I use well water here. So I, 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 you know, to paint. So I, I literally, um, treat my water as if they're Christ's tears and and as I'm mixing, you know, I'm I'm really praying through that and and so last five years while I was finishing this book um, has has been a journey of really preaching my heart, <laughs> you know, like mm. that you know, the, the, if there is only one way to anchor myself uh, in my lament, my sorrow, uh, it would be through Christ's tears that that I really felt that it was all about me, um, you know, and 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 so that that's I think part of the book that uh, you know I, I may not be explicit about, but but it's implicit in in every page. And I, I felt that it was Christ with us, <laughs> Christ with us. Uh, um, and I, I appreciated that so much. And what a delight it was to talk with you, Mako. I really enjoyed our conversation. 
I, I look forward to um, the more conversation about, you know, the, this apophatic way that yes. we can enter into uh, knowing God. And um, I, I, th I think, you know, that this is certainly a journey that I, I feel will continue after this book to develop. So oh, well, we look forward to it. This is your host, Amy Hughes with OnScript. We've been enjoying, been enjoying a conversation today with artist, writer, and speaker Makoto Fujimura. His book, Art Plus Faith, A Theology of Making, is published by Yale University Press. You can find a link to his book on our website, onscript.study. Thank you for joining me today, friends. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.